Welcome to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series and an accompanying exhibition at the Howarth Art Gallery, I'm exploring movement, migration and making through cloth, using pieces found in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection to tell the stories behind what we wear. Focusing on four fabrics, silk, linen, wool and cotton, I'm investigating the global strands of local stories that link Lancashire, at the heart of the textile industry in Britain, to areas throughout Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. The textile collection at Gawthorpe Hall includes a huge number of exquisitely embroidered silks from China. One of these pieces, a 19th century embroidered skirt for a Manchu woman, is a deep plum colour and it's intricately embroidered. It's covered with motifs such as lotus flowers, pomegranates, butterflies and bats. The founder of the collection at Gawthorpe, Rachel K. Shuttleworth, bought this skirt at the department store Liberty in London. I was keen to find out more, so I spoke to Rachel Midgley, curator at the Gawthorpe Textile Collection, who told me about the history of the collection itself, starting with her own role at the organisation. My name is Rachel Midgley and I'm the curator at Gawthorpe Textiles Collection. Um, my job includes providing access to the collection for the public and for researchers through study visits, guided tours and online events, um, and also curating and interpreting the collection for displays at, of historic textiles at Gawthorpe and also for external exhibitions that we might lend things to, um, and also to kind of oversee the ongoing care and management of the collection, so kind of looking after it, making sure that it's here um, for generations to come. So a little bit about the Gawthorpe Textile Collection. It was founded by the Honourable Rachel K. Shuttleworth and although it started off as her personal collection, she was really determined from a very kind of early point in the collection's kind of conception that it actually be used as a source of inspiration and education for the public uh, and not just used as her own kind of personal collection. At the time of her death, we believe the collection numbered around 10 to 12,000 items and there's a little kind of bit of discrepancy of record keeping towards the end, um, but that's what we kind of believe the sort of number of items that she collected in her lifetime was. Um, so it's a really amazing achievement for just one person um, and it was managed, it's now managed by an independent charitable trust and it continues to grow in size to where it is at the moment, which is around 30,000 items, probably a bit more. Um, and it encompasses embroidery, lace, costume, printed and woven textiles from all over the world and spanning about four centuries of history as well. So despite the kind of breadth of items in the collection and the real variety and the size of the collection, it is actually still seen as something of a hidden gem and visitors to the collection are often really surprised to learn about the size and the scope of the collection um, and the fact that it isn't just what's on display in the hall. So we have a very small kind of dedicated area in the hall where we're able to display some items. Um, but the bulk of the collection is kept in storage and it's accessible by appointment only. So people don't often kind of grasp that and they think it's just a very small collection um, and it's actually much, much bigger than, than people realise. How did Rachel K. Shuttleworth amass such an extensive textile collection? What was her collecting procedure? 
So Rachel Cashelsworth um, started collecting um, from actually a really young age. Um, her actual accession register that she started keeping a bit later in her life, um, she actually backdated that to the year she was born, but we don't think she was kind of collecting things as a baby. Um, but the first entry is in 1886, which is the year she was born. Um, but from a very young age, I think she would have been brought up around kind of collections of kind of beautiful textiles in the house. Her, her mother was descended from a collector as well. So I think probably she had a little bit of that collecting bug um, kind of that she passed on to Rachel. Um, but she started to kind of use the pieces that she was collecting um, just informally uh, as kind of visual aids when she was giving kind of talks and classes to local women. Um, and I think that's what then kind of made her realise the actual true importance of having those types of textiles available for people to study. And the kind of real benefit that people could get from being able to get up close to them um, and study them in a lot of detail and that was a real kind of goal that rachel had for the collection to sort of enable people who wouldn't normally have access to that kind of level of textiles but to kind of give them access to them so that they could appreciate them and study them themselves um, she actually never really bought very much for the collection she relied and um, kind of throughout the whole time she was collecting um, very, very heavily on donations. So luckily she had a very kind of generous um, and well-connected and well-traveled network of friends and family that she was able to kind of reach out to for textiles. Um, and she definitely wouldn't have been able to kind of create the type of collection that she did uh, on her own. So she really relied on that kind of network of people to kind of be passing on these really beautiful pieces and really kind of varied pieces. Um, she had a really wide variety of interests within the kind of sphere of textiles so she kind of collected quite eclectically in some ways and um, she had lots of different types of textiles not just kind of one area like embroidery but she collected all sorts um, and it was really through these relationships that she had with people where she got kind of donations of really good quality pieces. How did her family establish their wealth? So Rachel Cashelsworth came from a long line of landed gentry and the way that they established their wealth was um, mainly through land ownership and sort of tenancy agreements. Um, and in 1902, Rachel's father, Utrid, was actually elevated to the peerage, so they became members of the aristocracy, uh, and he was created Baron Shuttleworth. Um, and so Rachel had had quite an affluent upbringing at Gawthorpe as a, a child and as a young woman, um, moving between Gawthorpe Hall and various other properties that the family owned. But the latter part of her life, when she was kind of really seriously collecting, she was living quite frugally by comparison. She never married, and Gawthorpe was actually inherited by her nephew, obviously not her. Um, so after her father died, she ended up living at a small house in a nearby village of Bents. Um, she's supposed to have been able to see the top of Gawthorpe's tower from her bedroom window, which I always find really poignant as a sort of reminder of how her circumstances had changed. But she seems to have been very happy in this little cottage. Um, but when the collection started to grow, she was looking for somewhere else to kind of house it and, and possibly somewhere else to kind of live where she could work with the collection all the time. Uh, Gawthorpe became kind of vacated by the then Lord Shuttleworth in the 1950s um, and she was able to move back in uh, but even still she didn't kind of live in the house um, kind of fully she lived in a few small rooms that she had converted into a flat and the majority of the house was actually just used to store and display her textiles so she was kind of living in really different circumstances to the first time that she'd lived at Gawthorpe. Recently I visited Sissinghurst where Peter Sackwell West uh, lived and I mean, there she bought with her uh, uh, partner of the time. But, you know, she had the same thing with Noel. Like she was just couldn't inherit it because she was a woman. It's just oh, it's just so enra enraging. It was tricky because I think the family, when 
before the First World War, they'd just been elevated to the peerage and they, you know, they were on the up and they had, um, you know, they obviously they had three daughters before they did have an heir, but they had an heir and they had a spare and it kind of seemed everything was set. And then both of Rachel's brothers were killed in the First World War. And then both of Rachel's nephews, so one of her brother's sons, they were both killed in the Second World War. So they got hit with kind of four sets of death duties and four lots of kind of, you know, paperwork and sort of disputes and things. Um, not that there was any real acrimonious kind of dispute between family members, but it just kind of, instead of it passing really straightly down the line, it kind of went off, veered off at a sort of sideways angle. And, and that's how sort of, you know, it, it sort of came to pass into who became the fourth Lord Shuttleworth. But it, it's really sort of sad to think when you look through the scrapbooks we have from Rachel in the collection from a sort of early sort of young womanhood, she's kind of, you know, being presented at court. She's going to the opera all the time. She's going to parties. And then when you think when she was living in fence um, at the little kind of cottage, which is a lovely house. And most people would be perfectly happy to live there, but it is kind of tiny compared to Gawthorpe. Um, she didn't have a fridge. They used to just put things in like a sack hanging on a stick outside. And she, you know, they didn't have any household staff. She had a sort of a companion who was living with her who was actually older than her. So I think Rachel ended up taking care of her rather than the other way around in the end. So it's just like a complete reversal of fates, I think. And it's really, I, th I mean, I think she was happy to, you know, not have married she kind of did get offers of marriage but didn't accept them and things so you know she maybe was just happy doing what she was doing but it, it is quite sort of poignant to think that she'd kind of had this very grand life and then was kind of living this very sort of almost reclusive kind of life when she wasn't entertaining people by taking them around the collection so i think that was her lifeline to sort of still be involved in society and connecting with people could you tell me about the chinese silks in the collection so within the 30,000 items in the collection, there's um, over 400 pieces of those are actually Chinese in origin, which sounds like quite a small amount, but um, it's actually the next biggest um, sort of group of textiles from sort of non-European places. So it's actually the biggest international textiles sort of section of the collection. Um, many of those are actually examples of really fine silk embroidery, also worked on silk cloth. So there's lots and lots of silk represented in that section. Um, a lot of it takes the form of kind of embroidered garments and accessories so that's things like robes and um, collars, uh, badges of rank that would have been attached to the robes, um, cuffs or sleeve bands, and then also some ladies' skirts. So there's some really fine examples of embroideries in there and also some that are not quite as good. Um, so interesting, Rachel actually used to sometimes collect not as good examples of things as a sort of um, contrast to the really fine examples. She felt that it would help people to appreciate the true kind of skillful workmanship if they could actually compare it to not as accomplished examples as well. Um, so whether that was what she was doing with some of these pieces or maybe it's just what she was given through donations, but there is a slight mix in kind of skill levels um, ranging from very, very amazing examples down to sort of um, a little bit more kind of tourist tap pieces, but um, you know, still nice, but probably what would have been seen as um, kind of just touristy pieces that are worked quite quickly. Um, there's also within the Chinese textiles, there's also a nice kind of small um, section of those that are actually not the kind of imperial style embroideries. They're from the Miao people. Um, so these are representing more of the kind of indigenous kind of folk uh, styles of textiles that you see in China. Um, obviously, it's a really huge country, so we've only got the representation of one kind of quite smaller group of people. But they're a really nice contrast to the kind of more imperial styled pieces that we have in the collection. Do we know why there's such an extensive collection of Chinese silks? 
So one of the reasons I think there is actually quite a lot of Chinese silk in the collection is um, that Rachel actually seems to have really enjoyed uh, Chinese textiles in particular. Um, so I think because she probably told people that she liked them a lot, um, they would have been more likely to donate them to her, knowing that she would really appreciate them. Um, there's a really nice quote from Rachel where she's describing the Chinese embroideries and she says, the embroidery of China is unparalleled. The pieces in the collection with their exquisite colouring and perfection of workmanship delight all and are a tremendous source of inspiration to students. So I think that really illustrates kind of not just her personal kind of liking for them, but also the fact that she she found that people responded well to them. Um, I think a lot of the Chinese textiles really are very engaging, they're very vibrant, um, the colours are often still really kind of true to the originals, so they're really kind of um, visually kind of arresting and um, they kind of draw people in because the stitching is so detailed that it kind of it just invites you to look more closely at them and also they are just some of the really kind of amazingly beautiful examples of stitching so even if you don't really know anything about Chinese textiles in particular but you like embroidery you're going to be really impressed by the kind of workmanship on there. Um, I think another thing that Rachel was kind of drawn to was um, the fact that there's quite a lot of symbolism in the motifs that are used in the Chinese embroidery. So as well as being very kind of skillful pieces of, of work, um, I think she would have quite enjoyed kind of the, you know, the deciphering of the motifs and kind of doing the research to track down the different meanings that were hidden in there. So, um, for example, there's things like pairs of mandarin ducks, which symbolise marital fidelity and bats, which symbolise um, happiness and good luck and the pair of peaches, which symbolizes immortality or the desire for long life. And I think she would have enjoyed kind of picking out those motifs and seeing what message people were trying to convey with the textiles. Could you tell me about the imperial robe in the collection? So one of the highlights, or well, probably the real highlight of the Chinese textiles, without a doubt, is um, this really amazing, very bright yellow silk robe, um, which is completely covered in just the most exquisitely worked silk embroidery. It's it's just, it's very, very amazing embroidery. It's, it, to the extent that the robe, even though it's unlined, um, the inside and the outside of the robe are almost identical because of the kind of skill of the embroidery. There's not really any obvious kind of finishing off of threads. I'm sure they are there, but they are just so expertly kind of woven in and, and disguised that it it's you could almost wear it inside out and it would look kind of just as good so it's a really it's a very stunning piece and um, it has a lot of impact if you kind of see it um in person it's it's one of those things that people always kind of ooh and ah over when we kind of get it out for people um but it's got a really amazing story as well so it's almost almost as amazing as the item itself is this kind of story behind how it came into the collection um, which it's it's kind of, you know, sometimes this story just kind of makes people cringe, I think, to think about what could have happened to it. Um, but basically, a friend of Rachel's called Mrs. Gladys Stubby, um, she was wanting to raise a little bit of money and she had some old textiles that she was thinking she might sell. And one of them was what she described as an old yellow silk coat. And that was this robe that we're talking about. Um, so she'd taken these to a junk shop to get a sort of price for them. And she'd actually been offered five pounds at the junk shop for this old yellow silk coat. And she wanted to get Rachel's opinion of whether she thought that was a fair price or whether she thought she was being ripped off a little bit. So she wrote to Rachel and, and asked her and Rachel said, send it and I'll see and I'll, I'll give you my opinion of it. So the coat arrived just in the kind of ordinary parcel post with kind of no insurance, no kind of special wrapping, we don't think. Um, and it, Rachel says she unpacked it without any fanfare, kind of not expecting much. But on site, she actually immediately kind of realised what she was looking at or what she thought she was looking at, um, which is in fact an imperial sacrificial robe, which would have been worn by an emperor of China. 
So she supposedly sat up all night researching to kind of confirm that her suspicions were correct. So she actually did have some books on Chinese embroideries in the library um, and she would have used those to kind of maybe cross-reference the motifs and things. So we know that the, the sort of dragon that appears on it has five claws, which is a symbol that was only to be kind of worn by the kind of immediate family of the emperor or the emperor himself. So the kind of more standard version is a four-clawed dragon. Uh, and she confirmed that there was a five-clawed dragon that was on here and there was lots of other motifs that indicated this kind of imperial um, sort of, you know, wearer as well. So she kind of thought she was correcting her suspicions. So instead of sending it back to be sent off to the junk shop, she actually bought it for the collection. It's one of the few things that she bought. And she apparently paid, we don't know the actual amount, but the amount she paid for it was the equivalent of what she would have spent on two years worth of new clothes for herself. So she kind of gave up new clothes for two years, we think, just to kind of have the money to pay for this. So I would love to know what that amount was. Given that she was quite frugal, I think towards the end of her life, it probably isn't as much as we would think. But um, yeah, I think she would have probably got an amazing bargain, I think. But it just kind of goes to show that there were times when, where these types of textiles, even really impressive versions like this, were kind of just not valued the same as we do nowadays. So it's really good that people are actually starting to appreciate these and value them a lot more and they're becoming kind of, um, you know, preserved properly in, in collections and also kind of shared with people. I think collections are realising what they've got um, in these kind of international textile collections um, and realising that people kind of really appreciate them for what they are now. What's your favourite example of Chinese silk in the collection? So my favourite example is um, actually one of the pieces that we, we have it on display in Gothop at the time. Um, it's a really, really beautiful um, plum coloured uh, Manchu silk skirt. So it's from the sort of Manchu period, which is actually quite a long period. Um, so it's we think it's probably late 19th century, sort of second half of the 19th century. And it's a ladies skirt, kind of like a wrap skirt in style. But um, the reason I like this one piece in particular is it's a really beautiful example of embroidery. It's kind of similar to the robe in that the, the workmanship on it is really exquisite. Um, it's got a really kind of beautiful layout to the design. It's very well balanced. It's got beautiful motifs on it. It uses a few different stitches. So there's some satin stitch, but there's also um, some examples of a stitch called forbidden stitch um, or sometimes called peaking stitch. And there's a kind of romantic version and a sort of slightly more logical version of where the name comes from. Um, some people say that this stitch was called Forbidden Stitch because the daughters of noble families were forbidden from actually doing this stitch because it was so detrimental to their eyesight. Um, and the slightly more logical version is that it was actually a stitch that was widely used in the area surrounding the Forbidden City. So sometimes people like the kind of more romantic version of the story and sometimes people think a more sort of historical fact-based version. Um, but whichever you think, it's actually a very difficult stitch to work. It requires a lot of skill and a lot of kind of dexterity to get it really even. And this is a really beautiful example of that. So have a lot of respect for the embroiderers who worked on it. It's, it's also a really beautiful colour. It just happens to be my favourite colour. So that always makes me like it more. Um, but also it's one of the, another one of the few pieces that Rachel actually bought for the collection. And we actually know a little bit about where she bought this from. And she actually bought it from Liberties in London. So this is back when uh, Liberties, instead of being a kind of, um, you know, a department store kind of as it is now, it was actually a sort of trader of antique textiles and kind of curiosities and things, as well as its kind of own uh, sort of very arts and crafts inspired kind of goods as well. So we think she probably bought it around the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so probably as a young woman when they had the house down in London, so the family had a townhouse down in London and she visited there a lot. 
Uh, she used to go to the V&A and she used to go to Liberties and she used to go to the Embroiderers Guild headquarters and things. So she was very kind of immersed in the sort of textile scene down there. But it's a really beautiful piece and it's nice to kind of see something from quite early in the collection's kind of conception where she was picking up these really high quality items and kind of being interested in appreciating them from a very young age. This skirt, created in China and sold in London, speaks to the vast histories of interconnection between these two areas. Chinese design has inspired European fashion for centuries. So I spoke to design historian Sarah Chang about this process. I'm Sarah Chang and I'm a design historian. And that means I do history. I think about the past and tell stories about the past through looking at the material remains of the past. In other words, I do history through objects and I focus especially on fashion and textiles and I've got a particular interest in cultural exchanges between China and Britain. Sarah began by telling me about the work of the Research Collective for Decoloniality and Fashion. The Research Collective for Decoloniality and Fashion began its life as the Non-Western Fashion Conference. And it was a series of meetings between scholars who wanted to think about fashion from non-Western perspectives, or even just acknowledge the fact that fashion is present in all cultures and probably at all times. So that collection of scholars who wanted to think about how we include the non-Western within fashion began to think more deeply about decolonial debates, what it means to decolonise fashion, and has evolved into the research collective for decoloniality and fashion, which is a bit of a mouthful. So it's, a, it's become a really exciting, vibrant platform for conversations about how fashion can be more inclusive, how the fashion industry can be more inclusive, and how historians and scholars and students and anybody, and fashion consumers can think about important debates, about identity, about sustainability, in a much more of a global way. Historically, how important was sericulture and silk for the Chinese economy? Sericulture and silk has been absolutely crucial for the Chinese economy historically. And if you think about it, there was a huge trading network of overland and sea trading routes between 500 and 1500. And these are connecting towns and cities in China, South Asia, Indonesia, Africa, Europe, more widely. So it's a, it's a route that goes from China into Europe, but also spreads out more globally. And you can tell that silk was important because historians have given that key route from China to Europe, the name of the Silk Route. And the Silk Route specifically connected Western cities of China across Central Asia, Persia and India and into the Mediterranean. And it famously supplied the Roman Empire with Chinese silk. So that's how far back we're going with this history. When did we first see the influence of Chinese design and material culture in European fashion? So Chinese design and material culture came into European fashion in very small ways before the 17th century. And then it starts to build in the 17th century because of the establishing of direct shipping routes between Europe and China. Before the 17th century, there are small quantities of Chinese objects that appear in Europe and they're really treasures as the treasure does curiosities and they're coming in through these 
informal and formal trading routes that go across land and by sea. After the 17th century, there are European ships going regularly between Europe and China. So there begins to be a very important fashion in Europe for Chinese things, and that leads European designers to try and copy Chinese designs. And this is what we call chinoiserie, which is a term that was more recently invented in France to describe 17th and 18th century fashions for Chinese things. The 18th century was clearly a high point in the interest in chinoiserie. So the 18th century, in fact, created the template for chinoiserie. However, there was a huge rise in interest in Chinese design again in the early 20th century. And some of those designs, some of those European imitations of Chinese things were actually copying the older 18th century chinoiseries. And some of them were responding to a new set of objects that were coming out of China. And crucially, particularly of interest in my own work in fashion, was that from the late 19th century onwards, there was much greater availability of Chinese garments and Chinese embroidered textiles. So fashion and what you can put on the body became really exciting. Um, and you can go beyond even saying this looks like a Chinese motif. So there are particular kinds of embroidery shapes to do with cloud shapes, obviously dragons, bats, butterflies, certain kinds of flowers, which really scream China. And you're seeing those across a wide range of European garments. But also there's particular garment shapes that could be something with a side fastening. It could be uh, something with wide sleeves, um, a kind of construction that is somewhere between, it's a cross between a kimono and a Chinese robe where you have a big loose armhole, these kinds of fashions. I would like to use the term sinophilia for that because it's not just a sort of French aesthetic choice. This is an absolute craze. This is an irrational fashion for loving all things Chinese at this point. There's also very, it's also very fanciful. So you get pagoda shapes appearing in fashion, whether that's a, a shoulder or a sleeve, or you get a series of tiers within a skirt and they're referencing the idea of a pagoda. So there's many ways in which this happens. And we can even talk about it in terms of colors. So the kinds of colors that you see Chinese lacquer in, which is black, red, gold principally, those come to symbolize Chineseness in fashion. So even where you see just a general fashion that's using a lot of black and red and gold, what you're seeing is the influence of Chinese design in the 1920s. What impact did British imperialism and aggression have on the silk trade from China or silk production within China? In the mid 19th century, there was a series of armed conflicts between Europe and China. And these were part of the expansion of British and French imperialism in East Asia and Southeast Asia. This had a huge impact on the silk trade because the Opium Wars and then the suppression of what's known as the Boxer Uprising really disrupted uh, mercantile relationships with China, certainly disrupted uh, the political system, it disrupted how trade was being conducted with China. 
at the same time, the British are focusing on other kinds of silk production in other places. So China's not the only place where you can get silk from. And India was very crucial to the way in which the British Empire operated and the way in which the economics of the British Empire operated. So Indian silk is also a possibility. And the importance of Chinese silk, Chinese silk doesn't go away. So Chinese silk is always being bought in Europe, but it sits alongside silk from other places. It's lost its cachet, perhaps, let's say. Um, and I think that historians have tended to focus a lot more on Indian silk from the point from the point of the Opium Wars because the story of empire leads historians to think more about India. There's more work to be done, I think, on how much silk was still coming in from China and what that disruption looked like. Is the early 20th century also a period where Chinese fashion is influenced by European dress? What's really interesting about this early 20th century moment where British women are fascinated by Chinese clothing and are wearing all kinds of garments that look like Chinese garments and they're even wearing Chinese garments unaltered so robes and skirts and all kinds of things they're wearing them as clothing to lounge around in at home and even as really amazing sumptuous beautifully embroidered evening coats now in China at the same time there are radical changes in society to, to put it very simply, Chinese society is westernising to a certain extent. And this also involves a rethink of what modern Chinese clothing should look like. And one of the many things that happens is that women in China start to wear a garment that we now know as the qi pao or the qiong sam. And although it doesn't look exactly like a western garment, it's very, very influenced by some key things that define Western fashion. One of those is clothing that's, that's designed to fit the human body quite closely. So whereas the 19th century Chinese, Chinese clothing is very loose and it's almost flat, you know, it's not designed with darts that, that for a bust or for a waist. The new clothing that's emerging in Republican China in, in the 1920s and 1930s, it, uh, and can be seen in an example of the qi pao, has, is using darts, is shaped in certain ways so that you have clothing for women that shows the shape of a woman's body. Secondly, the qi pao has these very short sleeves, so you see more of a woman's body, more than you ever saw in the 19th century. So I'd say that these are two key ways in which you can see European fashion having an influence on Chinese fashion. At the same time, the qi pao retains some really key Chinese features like the high collar and the side fastening, which mean that they never really lose their sense of what it is to be a Chinese woman. Do you have any reflections on the place of liberty? in popularising non-Western motifs or non-Western design in fashion. Liberty has been a really important agent of spreading Chinese fashion, particularly in the aesthetic elites of the late 19th and early 20th century. So Liberty is a much more expensive place to shop 
than, say, Whiteley's department store. And it's certainly a more expensive place to shop than your local department store. And even uh, I could point to your local bazaar or local fancy goods shop. And all of these places might, in fact, all these places did sell pieces of Chinese embroidery, but Liberty were the, the, the top end. Liberty was selling Chinese embroideries and Chinese garments that they claimed could have belonged to the emperor of China. They could have come from imperial palaces and they're selling very high quality Chinese garments. Some of the Chinese embroideries were cut up and they were remade into objects that fit into modern European lifestyles, like boxes to put cigarettes in, to put your makeup in, to keep your gloves in. You get trays which uh, have pieces of Chinese embroidery under a piece of glass. So it's very practical, actually, because you can serve your tea for your friends on a piece of Chinese embroidery, but it's also wiped clean. So I think it's quite clever. It's quite modern. The place of liberties in all of this is to guarantee the high quality, I think, of the embroideries that they're selling, and also to keep that mystique of the Chinese embroidery as something that could have come from an emperor's palace. Whereas we know that most of the embroideries that were available on the Western market were probably part of the embroidery export industry in China. They're being made specific, they're being made in huge workshops specifically to sell to the European market. Or they were old second-hand stuff that nobody wanted anymore that was being passed from per, from trader to trader and eventually makes its way into department stores in the in in britain the chinese embroidered silk skirt in the gawthorpe collection is a really good example of how liberty were bringing chinese garments and chinese embroidered textiles into britain so this is a skirt that would have been worn by a woman in china perhaps in the later 19th century. And it has a, a concentration of gorgeous embroideries with many different kinds of threads and styles in a central panel at the bottom of the skirt. And that's because these women would have been wearing a longer jacket that covered a lot of the skirt. Um, and, you know, the embroiderers aren't stupid. They're only going to do the embroidery at the bottom end that's going to, where it's going to be seen. Now, this kind of skirt was being sold by Liberty, sometimes as a piece of embroidery that they expected people to cut up and reuse elsewhere in the house. They might make it into a cushion, they might frame it and put it on the wall. Liberty themselves were also selling these skirts, but converting them into capes. So there are examples from the 1880s, 1890s of um, capes, short capes for women to wear that were just an embroidered Chinese skirt with the waistline altered and gathered up and then they add a little collar and it makes a neat little cape. So there are lots of ways in which Liberty are playing around with garments like these skirts and it's great to see one of these in the Shuttleworth collection and I would imagine that Rachel K. Shuttleworth collected this in order to look mainly at the embroidery stars but we also know that people could be very hands-on with that collection and that she was using her, her textile collection in all kinds of ways to, to try and get people excited about sewing and about embroidery. So I like to imagine that she might even have worn it herself and in order to inspire. And certainly that people would have been able to try it on and, and examine it really closely in ways that we can only dream of now when we look at a museum collection. 
The beautiful embroidery on this late 19th century skirt reminds us of the complicated histories between China and Britain and of the place of stores like Liberty in popularising non-Western design. But how did silk become such a luxury product? Join me next time on the Cloth Cultures podcast when I'll be exploring the natural history of silk and the dangers of its unnatural descendants. You can find out more about the British Textile Biennials commissions and programme of events on Twitter at Textile Biennial and on Facebook and Instagram at British Textile Biennial. See you next time.